Let's open our Bibles together. This morning we are going to be in the book of 1st and 2nd Kings. The book of 1st and 2nd Kings were originally one book. As I said last week, 1st and 2nd Samuel was originally one book. We have split them for many different reasons to, to navigate the long book a little bit easier. But it doesn't change the truth that we're going to see in this. So I'm going to pick up the storyline and we've got to jump right into this. For our visitors, I want to welcome you this morning. Thank you for being here. We're going through a study called... Go back one slide. This is so creative. Are you all ready for this? A sermon series through all 66 books of the Holy Bible. And what I'm doing is, is every week teaching an overview of one book or in this case, two books, and we're looking from 30,000 feet. A lot of times on the ground, there's limited things that you can see, and I love preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse. That's my bread and butter. That's what I love, but sometimes it's good to step back, to zoom out, to see the overall picture, and to see how it all connects. So I just want to ask you right up front, don't raise your hand, don't respond unless you just want to, but you don't have to. How many of you guys feel like you are incredibly familiar with First and Second Kings? How many of you feel like you, you probably don't need this sermon because you know everything that happens in this book and you've studied this book so much that you're just like, you know exactly where we're going and you're like, yeah, I could probably teach this lesson. I ask that question because most pastors that I've talked to this week and as I've been studying, most pastors say these are the books that they are least familiar with. And these are the books that the historical books, the earlier prophets, are. these are the books that a lot of times we don't give as much attention to. But it's interesting that as we're going to see today, the gospel is connected, the storyline the, the message of redemption runs through the storyline of the entire Bible. It's one story written about God. And it tells us who he is, who we are, and it lets us know what he expects of us, what our problem is, and what our hope is, what the answer is for all the problems that we see in our world. So I'm picking up the storyline straight out of First and Second Samuel we finished 2nd Samuel last week. So we find a united kingdom in Israel. The Israelites have been delivered out of slavery. God fulfilled his promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt and delivered them into the promised land through Joshua, who was a mighty man of God, a mighty man of valor. And Joshua, when he died, when he led them into the land and when he died, reminded them that they had to serve the Lord, that God was leading them into this place, but there were expectations along with the covenant that they had to obey God. They had to refrain from worshiping idols and there were things that they were called to do in order for God's blessings to be upon them and to be upon the land. And we find them living in the promised land David is old and dying, and Solomon is God's chosen king. And this is the peaceful 
prosperous time and we're getting ready to go into the reign of Solomon, which is the most prosperous time in all of the land of Israel and the history of Israel, the greatest time of blessing, the greatest time of peace. And Solomon is God's chosen king. He had let David know that Solomon was his son that was going to be the one that the promise for an eternal king would come through David's line and Solomon's line. But as we get into the book of 1 Kings, chapter 1, verse 5, we see this verse that should really cause us to pause and think about our own lives. It says, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. That's 1 Kings 1, 5. Adonijah, David's son, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. That was not God's plan for Israel. It wasn't God's plan for Adonijah. Yet he had something in his mind that went against God's plan. And I wonder how many times we do this, where we say, I will fill in the blank. I will be, I will do. And what we're ultimately doing when we say, God, I'm not going to follow your plan. I'm not going to submit to your plan. We're saying, I will be king. And that is dangerous, church. When we step into the place of doing what Satan offered to Adam and Eve in the garden, you can be like God. You don't need him. You don't need to listen to him. You don't need to trust his word. You can be the king of your own life. So Nathan, the prophet, and Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, David's wife, go in and tell David. And David anoints Solomon king. And I want to pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And one of Paul's right there, we're going into the second part of David's charge where David is going, I don't, I don't have time to read all of this, but David, we're gonna see a shift in what we've seen earlier in David's life where David tells Solomon all the people that he refused to deal with as a leader, but he wants Solomon to take care of all these men. And ultimately, many of these men end up getting killed, and we're not told if that's God's will or if that's just what uh, David wanted to happen. But if you remember last week, I made the point three or four different times from, from 2 Samuel that we see David as a man who was a man after God's heart. David is constantly forgiving his enemies, constantly refusing to take vengeance when it was his rightful place. And he is 
mirroring God and imaging God in how he shows mercy and forgives his enemies. But then we see here at the end of his life, if you read through the entire story, there are some other things that just seem off, that just seem wrong. This doesn't seem like the same David. David is not finishing well. God still honored him. God still blessed his family. But God told him in 2 Samuel that the sword would never depart from his house. And it never did. The consequences of David's sin were more than he could bear. But even in the end of his life, we see him being faithful to God. But there are many inconsistencies in his life. So just moving forward through the storyline, just to catch you up on what is going on through the book of First and Second Kings. Adonijah is killed. He's given a chance by Solomon. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He is killed for trying to usurp the throne. Abathar is expelled from being the priest. He deserved to die, but Solomon showed him mercy. Joab was killed. Shimei, the guy who had cursed and dishonored David when Absalom rose up, rose up and, and uh, revolted against King David and tried to kill him. When he was leaving the city, Shimei cursed him, and when David and his armies defeated his son Absalom and he came back into the city, he refused to kill or, or to punish Shimei. But then at the end of his life, he wanted Solomon to take care of it. Well, Solomon gave him a chance, gave him the boundaries of what he could do and what he couldn't do. And a few years later, he broke it and Solomon had him executed as well. But then chapter two ends like this. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. But chapter three starts with these words. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing it at high places. However, no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So you already see in the beginning of Solomon's life, there's this mixed allegiance. He loves the Lord. He truly, genuinely loves the Lord. But he's doing things that do not honor God, basically, he's trying to worship God in the same way that the nations around him worship their gods. Instead of going to Shiloh and worshiping God where the tabernacle was and the priests offering the sacrifices as God had laid out, Solomon is ascending to the high places and worshiping like the pagans worshiped. And there's a whole sermon in that that we could talk about this morning, but we're not going to. But I just want you to notice that there's this mixed allegiance in Solomon. Even as he's starting out, his heart is not fully devoted to the Lord, even though he loves the Lord and he's walking in the statutes of David. And then we see that God appears to Solomon. This famous story, God appears to Solomon and says, what shall I give to you? And Solomon asks very humbly, asks God for wisdom, for knowledge, for how to rule. He says, I am just a child. He said, I don't know how to go in or how to come out. I need you to give me wisdom. And God 
honors him and gives him more than he could ever ask for. Jesus said that he was the wisest man out of all the men that ever lived. God gave him more wisdom. God gave him more wealth, more influence. And God tells him in verse 14, and if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So we see this command on his life to obey God's word, to keep his commandments, and to walk in his ways, to love him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, which was the summary of all the commandments. So God blesses him, gives him all of this wisdom, but then we see this story that I remember as a little child hearing this story. And it's, it's an amazing story, and we still kind of stand in awe at the wisdom of Solomon, but it also exposes some things that are going on in God's kingdom. There's a story of two prostitutes in Jerusalem who come before King Solomon, and one of their children died, and one of their children was alive, and they both said that the dead child was the other person's and the alive child was their person. That was, was their baby. And no one knew what to do. No one knew how to judge. So they come before Solomon and Solomon says, bring me a sword. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut the baby in half and I'll give each of you half. Well, we all know what happened. The true mother said, no, give it to her. I, don't do that. And the mother who was lying, whose baby had died, said, yes, cut it in half. I'd rather have half of my baby than not, none of my baby. And everybody celebrated and everybody's amazed at the wisdom and rightfully so God had given Solomon incredible wisdom how would you have handled that situation he handled it very well but it exposes the fact that there are prostitutes in Jerusalem God's city and this doesn't seem to be a hidden thing this doesn't seem like something they're ashamed of as a matter of fact they come before the king boldly proclaiming their case, arguing with one another. So it doesn't seem like they're hiding their sin. It seems like it's just blatant. At this point in Israel's history where they're supposed to be worshiping God more than any other time, David did away with the idol worship, but there's still things going on that are not right in Solomon's kingdom. And we don't see anything about Solomon speaking out against prostitution or speaking out against the things that are going on. We just see his wisdom put on display. Then we're told about Solomon's officials, his wisdom and his wealth. The Bible tells us that Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now I had an opportunity to stand at this location where Solomon's uh, stables were located and it's overlooking the valley of Megiddo and it was just an unbelievable opportunity to be there but does anybody see the problem with this Solomon is doing something that goes directly against God's commands for the kings and we're going to be looking at that in just a little bit then we see that Solomon moves into this stage of preparation David wanted to build a temple for God, and God said, no, your son is going to build the temple. 
Because David was a man of war, he had blood on his hands. And so Solomon prepares, and you should read all the things he went through. All the stone quarries and all the workers, all the laborers, all the trees that were imported from areas around, all the different things that are happening. And then he builds the temple. Then he builds his palace. And he furnishes the temple. Then the ark is brought to the temple. And everything is focused on worshiping God in Jerusalem. And then he blesses the Lord and prays his prayer of dedication. And these sacrifices are offered at the temple. And this just seems like the pinnacle of God's promises being fulfilled in the land of Israel. Then the queen of Sheba comes and visits Solomon. And the Bible says that her breath is taken away at all that Solomon has, at all of his wisdom. And then the Bible tells us about Solomon's great wealth that he amassed for himself. Unbelievable how much wealth this man had. Still unmatched in our day. But then chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 11. Follow along with me on this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And I could go on down and read how Solomon, verse 4, Solomon when he was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And he was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow Follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And he did so for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Verse 9, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Then we see that God raises up adversaries against Solomon and the rest of his reign, which had been peaceful up to this point, the rest of his reign is racked with opposition and enemies. And it was a direct judgment of God. And the next thing we see, verse 41 says, Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and all his wisdom, are they not written in the books, book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. 
God told Solomon when he turned his heart after these false gods that after he passed away, when his sons reigned, that he would tear the kingdom and split it in two. And that's exactly what happened. So the rest of the book from chapter 12 all the way through the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. I know it took us a while to get to this point, and you're thinking, wow, this is going to be a really long sermon. No, the rest of these books basically look something like this. I want to show you this graphic that I have here. All the rulers of Israel and Judah. This is a timeline, and it starts out with the time of the judges. But before I get that, I want you to notice the gold color are the kings that did right was they did right in the eyes of the Lord. The lighter blue is they mostly did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And the dark blue was they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we see it comes out of the time of the judges, King Saul, King David, and this thing. Let's go on down on this chart. And then King Solomon. And you see those three kings, the first three kings of Israel. Saul did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David walked in the ways of the Lord, and Solomon kind of, sort of did. But I want you to look at the right side after this kingdom is divided. We're going to go through this and look at the kings of Israel, starting with Jeroboam. And the thing I want you to notice about this is out of these 20 kings, not one of them does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, or even mostly does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. They all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as you read through the book of First and Second Kings, it jumps back and forth between the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. And up to this point in Scripture, we've called Israel God's people. But at this point, the ones who split off and take the name of Israel, they're the ones who rebelled against God's king. And they become so much like the paganites, and the pagans, there's just no difference. And there's not one of these kings. So let's just go down through this list. And I'm not going to read all these names. I just want you to see it. Let's move on down. You can see on the left side that there are some kings that walk with God. But on the right side, go on down. One more time. So in 722, I believe this is about after 150 years, Samaria falls the northern kingdom is taken captive by Assyria. Which, what do you think that does for the name of God among the nations? It causes the name of God to be blasphemed because his people disobeyed and none of the kings in Israel, the northern tribes, walked with God or did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And there are kings on that side like King Ahab and some kings even worse than King Ahab who did some terrible things, ultimately leading up to the king who offered his own son as a burnt offering to a false god, to an idol. So I want to go back up to the top of this list, starting on the kings of Judah, which will be on the left side. Let's go ahead and move through this list. I just want you to come on down through and see. So it starts out with Rehoboam. Asa, we see, is a king after a terrible king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and God blessed him. Moving on down through this list, we see Jehoshaphat also did what was right. And then we had three, two evil kings, and then 
a queen, Athaliah, who murdered the royal family, but God saves a remnant. King Joash, who we're going to see in just a moment, was hidden and he was saved. So moving on down, we see that uh, Joash, Amaziah, they mostly do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Azariah is the same. Moving on down, Jotham, Ahaz, but then King Hezekiah. This is a king that God does incredible things in his life. This is where God saves his people from the Assyrian army who mocked God, blasphemed God, and they're surrounding the city. But God rescues them. God delivers his people through the prayer of Hezekiah. Moving on down, we see after the northern kingdom ended, the southern kingdom of Judah continues on, and Josiah is... One of the greatest kings. Incredible life. Incredible story. Study this man's life. He was just a young boy when he became the king. They found the book of the law and he sets out to reform all the things that the kings before him had messed up. He is a man that devoted his heart to God and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and God blessed him. Moving on down. We see that even though there were good kings and bad kings, ultimately, the southern tribes. The kingdom of Judah falls and Jerusalem is destroyed and the people of Judah are taken captive to Babylon for 70 years. And as we think about all these kings, just think about the graphic of all the lives of all these kings. There's some historical implications that I need you to see for this. And I mentioned this earlier. But the book of 1 and 2 Kings answers some questions that need to be answered. Especially for people who don't know a lot about the Bible, they haven't studied the Bible. Was Israel's God not in fact in control of history as Moses had claimed? If the God of Moses did exist and he was good and all powerful, how was it that God's chosen city and his temple had been destroyed by the enemies of God, by the pagans, by the idol worshipers? And that his chosen royal family had all but appeared to come to an end. The book of first and second Kings answers those questions because it shows us that they are being punished like a good father, God punishes his disobedient children. But we're going to see that he punishes them for a time. But ultimately, he's going to fulfill his promises. And he's going to bring them back into the land. The temple's going to be rebuilt. The walls are going to be rebuilt. And ultimately, Jesus Christ is going to come. And fulfill all the promises of God to King David, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But I want to remind you that the people that were in the land of Israel knew that God had given them stipulations for living in the land. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 28, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And then we go down through chapter 28 and he tells them how they will be blessed when they go out, blessed when they come in. 
every possible aspect of their culture, their society, their worship, even to their finances. They're going to be blessed above all the nations of the world if they will simply obey the word of the Lord their God. But then he goes on down and he says in verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the voice of the Lord your God carefully to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then he lists out all the curses on their field, on their cities, on their food, on their children, on all these different aspects. And they chose to disobey God. They chose to worship idols. And God punishes them for that. But God's still on, on his throne. He's still in control. God hasn't lost control of his people or of his creation. He is sovereignly ruling and reigning. Another thing I notice historically is that in the book of Deuteronomy, God gives rules for the kings of Israel. And these are the rules that God gives them. He says, first of all, that God is going to choose the king. And he says, it's not going to be a foreigner. It's going to be one of God's people. And these are the stipulations. He says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause to the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. That's exactly what Solomon did. Exactly what he did. He was buying horses and chariots from the land of Egypt and he acquired many horses for himself. God says you shall never return that way again. That's exactly what Solomon did. And the other kings did the same. Verse 17 he says, And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Solomon disobeyed both of those things. Then he goes on, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive, excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up. We see David disobeying God in these areas. We see Solomon absolutely disregarding the word of the Lord. Yet we see God using both of these men in some incredible ways. Yet both of their lives end tragically. Solomon more so than David. But even in David's life, he just did not finish well. And it all comes back to the fact that they did not obey the word of the Lord. What does God expect of his people? He expects us to obey his word. Church, how are we going to obey his word if we don't know his word? Why am I doing a study uh, through an overview of the books of the Bible? Because I want us to be reminded of how God's word is one story, how it's all connected, how God is king, how he's ruling on his throne, and how he is the righteous judge of all the earth. And he's our father. 
And he's going to discipline his children. Each one of these kings that we looked at as we go down this list, each one of these kings had to choose for themselves what they were going to do. If they were going to walk in the ways of the Lord or if they were going to do what all the enemy pagan nations around them were doing. So historically, we see that God had warned them. He had given them his law. They knew what the expectations were. He even had rules for the kings. But I want you to remember that God's promises are still true. God is still faithful even when we are unfaithful. God had promised Eve when she sinned in the garden that he was going to send a deliverer that would crush the head of the serpent. And God's promises are still true. He promised Abraham that through his offspring, Abraham didn't even have any offspring, but God promised him through his future offspring, the Messiah would come and through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He promised Moses that one greater than him would come. He promised David and Solomon. He promised the prophets over and over again that one was coming that was going to set everything right. And he was going to be a king. The book of First and Second Kings reminds us that no earthly king can be what we need. No earthly leader can live up to the expectations on his life. But the king who came, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross for our sin as a sacrifice, rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Jesus Christ, highly exalted, King of kings, Lord of lords, he is the king. He's the true king. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. And he's the one that all of our hope goes toward. The promises of God are yes and amen. There are over 574, 574 verses in the Old Testament that point to or describe the coming Messiah. There are 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or the times of the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled at least 300 of the prophecies in his earthly ministry. And ultimately, there will be more prophecies fulfilled because every single promise of God will come to pass fully. God will not fail to keep one of his promises to his people Israel or to us. So the Christ connection for us this morning, and this is what we're looking at through every single book in the Old Testament, and then when we get to the New Testament, it's going to be the same. Because in the Old Testament, we have the promise of the coming Messiah. In the New Testament, he's here. And he does what he said he was going to do. But our Christ connection for the book of 1 and 2 Kings is, as I've already said, that Jesus is the true and better king. All earthly kings fail. But Christ is God's perfect king of righteousness. He's our only hope for Salvation Church. He's the only hope for Asheville. He's the only hope for the world. Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Him as your Redeemer, as the one who sets your story 
right and brings your story in line with God's story. God, through the blood of Christ, takes enemies and makes them sons and daughters. And he takes rebels and makes them members of the household of God and brings the rebels into his kingdom. And he is ruling and he is reigning. And as we go through this admittedly heavy book or two books, First and Second Kings, and we see failure after failure after failure. And along the way, we see prophets that God raises up to do incredible things foreshadowing the coming Messiah. And we see kings that in the middle of a line of disobedient rulers, they choose to follow God. And they lead revivals in the land and dedicate themselves to living for righteousness. That should challenge us not to lose hope in the middle of a desperate, hopeless society. We are called to be the people of God, church. We're called to live holy lives. And it's not easy, but it's possible because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. So for our application this morning, I'm going to go through these quickly, but number one, obedience to Christ is not possible apart from Scripture and the Holy Spirit. We've got to know the Bible. We've got to love the Bible. We've got to submit our hearts to God's word. We have to work and study to understand the Bible. I can't tell you how many times I've read on a reading plan through the books of First and Second Kings and had no idea what I read. It just sounded like all these different split up, broken up stories. But as you step back and you look at the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, you realize that God was painting a picture that ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ as the only true king. And we can't truly walk in obedience. And we can't tr truly have the fruit of the Spirit apart from the Word of God. The Jews were called the people of the book. It, it was kind of something that was, the, the surrounding nations made fun of them. And even today it's used in, in a way to slander the Jewish people, and now Christians, and we're called the people of the book because even pagan cultures expect us to know and obey God's word. Number two, we must submit to God as our rightful king or we will usurp his authority. We have to keep a humble heart and daily, we have to submit to his righteous rule and reign, or ultimately, this flesh, this sinful nature that's still inside of us, even though we've been saved and even though we've been redeemed, it will rise up and it will cause us to rebel against the very God that we love in the same way that Solomon did, because Solomon forgot about the word of the Lord. Number three, our lives are connected to God's bigger plan. Your life is not just about you. It's not just about Asheville. It's not just about your family. Your life is connected to the kingdom of God. And your life, your 40, 50, 60, 80 years can count for eternity. Number four, sin has grave consequences. If we don't see anything else in the books 
of first and second Kings. We need to step back and say, Lord, I'm playing with sin in my life. And I guarantee you, everyone in here is struggling with sin. And some of us are playing with it. And we think it won't affect me. It won't get me. I can sin and get away with it. Our eyes, our lives are laid bare before the eyes of God. He sees and he knows everything. And if you're his child, he will correct you. We don't get away with anything. We bear the consequences of our sin. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he will forgive. But he forgave David, but the sword never departed from David's house. Number five, repentance is essential. Church, Christians, we are called to live lives of repentance. Daily, we need to cast our cares and our sins and our failures and our shortcomings at the feet of Jesus. I heard a preacher say, an old-time preacher said one time, keep a short list between you and God. Keep a short list. Confess your sin. Don't wait until it's been six months and you're so far down the road. Confess the sins you committed this morning. Ask him to forgive you for that. Keep a short list with God. Ultimately, Jesus died for all your sins. The Bible says we should confess our sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance is essential. We've all heard of the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the door. Do you know what the very first one was? That all of the Christian life is to be a life of repentance. This is essential. And number six, it may not feel like it, but there's hope. We live in a world, we live in a culture, a society, a nation where if we watch the news, if you read articles, it, it doesn't take very long to feel like it's hopeless. It doesn't take long to feel this sense of desperation, but we are the bearers of hope. A few years ago, they said that hope was the strongest word, the most powerful word in the English language, which is the one of the reasons we chose that for the name of this church. It's powerful because we can't live without it. We must have hope, and there is hope, and this world needs it. And I want to close out this morning with the gospel. The Lord was faithful to do what he said he would do. He gave his people rest. He kept all of his covenant and all of his promises. But in contrast, we see the history of God's people is characterized as covenant-breaking, disobedient, and infidelity to their God. But we're reminded through the books of 1 and 2 Kings that God is faithful to his covenant people, even when we're not faithful. We have to understand that God's grace and his mercy toward us is rooted in the same hope that we see in the book of Kings, that God does not treat us as our sin deserves because of the faithfulness of someone else because of Jesus Christ he bore our sin he was the son of David the root and the offspring of David he is the true and the better David and he bore our sins paid the price for the sins of his people 
before God, all who believe in him, all who place their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. They're saved and their sins have already been paid for. Jesus bore the consequences for our sins. His obedience merited our righteousness before God. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't deserve it. But Jesus did it. He did the work and he declared, it is finished. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we are guaranteed that God's steadfast love, his hesed love, his long-suffering, patient love that never changes, his unconditional love toward us will never run out. Because the curse for covenant disobedience has been born in the body of Christ and he's paid the penalty for our sins. And now we rest as God's people in his salvation. And it's all because of him. It all goes back to him. He gets all the glory, all the honor, all the credit. As we sang this morning, he's worthy of every song we could ever sing, of any praise that we could ever bring. The breath that's in our lungs was given us by him to praise him and to glorify him. And I pray that not one day goes by that we don't revel in his grace, in his mercy, and his goodness. None of us can claim perfection. We all have failed in our lives. But he's faithful. He's perfect. And this morning, if we would turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of this earth, the things that distract us from him, the temptations, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we pause at the end of this service, this gathering of your people to thank you for the good news that we've just heard, to thank you for the the gospel that is proclaimed from Genesis to Revelation that one greater than Moses, one greater than David one greater than all the prophets is coming and his name is Jesus and he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace Jesus you are the only one that brings peace to our chaos that brings hope to our despair, that brings joy into our suffering. And Jesus, you are the only one that can bring salvation to a sinful people. And God, we praise you this morning. I pray that we would just take a, take a look at each of our lives personally in this moment and assess 
where we're at with you. God, I pray that you would convict us of sin. Holy Spirit, move us to truly set our heart to walk in the ways of your word. And God, at the end of our lives, when people gather in a building like this and we're rolled in in front of all those people that knew us and loved us, Lord, I pray, God, I pray that the story of our lives will be that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That they walk in the ways of the Lord. That we set our hearts to love the Lord our God and to obey all of his commands. And God, that starts now. Pray that you would convict us. Lord, I pray that you would change us from the inside out. Lord, I pray that you would use us as we walk humbly before you. That we would bring many other men and women along with us to be introduced to Christ, to be saved, to have their lives changed. And that disciples would be made in this place. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is truly equipping saints for the work of the ministry and that none of us would sit on the sidelines but that every single one of us would step up and say yes Lord whatever it is whatever your will is I'm ready to go I'm ready to step out Holy Spirit we ask that you would have free rule and reign in our hearts this morning may we walk in the ways of your word we ask all this in Jesus name amen